This podcast was recorded on Thursday, March 29th at 1.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. What's classified needs to remain classified. For two weeks now, the Conservatives have hammered the Liberals over their refusal to allow the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor to testify at committee. The Tories want Daniel Jean to explain why he suggested to reporters in a background briefing that there were factions within the Indian government responsible for Jaspal Atwal's embarrassing presence at Canadian government events in India. Atwal, of course, is the former Sikh separatist convicted of attempted murder. Being a guest at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's events kept off a much-ridiculed trip to India. Last week, the Tories held a 21-hour filibuster to try to force the government's hand. But the Liberals held firm. What is clear is that the approach the Conservatives took when in government, the heavy-handed approach, is exactly the approach they are taking now in opposition. Clearly, they have not listened to Canadians. Clearly, they do not want this place to function. The Privy Council office came to the government's defense by acknowledging that it had offered Conservative leader Andrew Scheer a briefing, something his staff acknowledged and then denied. He was never formally informed or asked or told that he would be able to have a briefing. He found out through media reports late last night, so he was never actually offered a briefing. In the end, MPs left the chamber a day later with the pillows, reading materials, and empty snack wrappers they'd brought in to pass all that time. They'd achieved consensus on one thing. Uh, I'm ready to go home to bed. The filibuster is over, but the arguing, predictably, is not. Now the government says the opposition is choosing to be blind. The issue is here is the leader of the official opposition so wants to be able to play political games with this issue that he plugs his ears, refuses to know the truth, and he's continually refusing to get a full classified briefing on this situation. Only Stephen Harper's Conservative Party would think that giving information to the media is somehow hiding information from Canadians. And the Tories are suggesting the government gave journalists classified information and are trying to cover up their tracks. The only reason why the Prime Minister is offering me a briefing for classified information in my capacity as a Privy Councillor is to prevent me from asking questions about his disasters concocted this theory? Was it Gerald Butts? Was it Katie Telford? Was it anybody else in the Prime Minister's office? These, Mr. Speaker, are fair questions, and they're fair questions that need to be asked at committee. I'm Althea Raj, and this is a follow-up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. On today's show, we unpack the Daniel Jean affair. Who's wrong and who's right in all this? The opposition is clearly uh, playing political games with a very serious situation. The fact of the matter is, last Friday, they threw away an entire question period. They filibustered in, in unnecessary votes for hours on end. The leader of the official opposition has been given the opportunity to uh, receive a full 
classified briefing on all aspects of this issue and chooses not to understand the truth. The public safety uh, minister in his famous elevator press conference suggested that it was okay for the national security advisor to brief members of the media and take questions on this conspiracy theory, but that it was okay for the government not to allow MPs to have that information. I don't agree, Mr. Speaker. That is a breach of my privilege. It's unethical. It's a cover-up. Kitty O'Malley, a parliamentary watcher and iPolitics scribe, joins me here in our Hill office to talk about this burning issue, <laughs> or at least an issue burning up the floor of the House of Commons. Katie, I, I think we need to just acknowledge that it's starting to feel like Groundhog Day here, uh, with the opposition asking the same question and the government giving the same answer. What are the Conservatives trying to gain by drawing attention to comments that Daniel Jean gave reporters? Well, I think what they're trying to, and I should just specify that I'm working on zero inside information here. I'm just sort of trying to figure it out based on what I'm watching as well, because I might, I, I've been scratching my head as to the strategy. I get that they're trying to keep the India trip in the news and in the news cycle and the prime minister and the government on the defensive over it. That is a that is a strategy we can all understand. It was a really bad time for the liberals. And the longer they can prolong that, the longer it continues to be bad for the liberals would be the philosophy. I think where I think a lot of us are having problems is figuring out exactly why it is that they've sort of honed in on this one particular aspect of the India trip, which is this briefing that a senior official, it's funny, it's never actually been officially acknowledged that it was Daniel Jean who gave this briefing. I mean, it's sort of understood. It's never been denied, which is almost as good as an affirmation. But I think it's really interesting that we keep sort of stating it as a fact when it's never been officially, officially yeah, put the on the government record. has never listened. No, they haven't. They've not, they've not denied it. They've not confirmed it. It's just out there. But it, it is interesting to note that it was actually the conservatives who leaked yes. uh, Daniel Jean's name as the, the as source, the, 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 the source. guy behind this unnamed but government I mean, source. in general, if you were going to go over the India trip and pick out the sort of the high points of the thing, let's pretend we're putting together the conservative at- attack ad in 2019 and we have 30 seconds and what elements of the India trip do we put out there? You know what? I don't think we do the background briefing with Daniel Jean because that's incredibly complicated and takes a lot longer than 30 seconds to kind of sum up. As any of us who've tried to write a background graph on this can tell you, it is really difficult to sum it up no, in, of course. in a few sentences. You put so, Jasper at Wall's presence with I know, Sophie and then you have to Pudu. assume that people get the other bits. And the embarrassing the, uh, over-the-top right. Indian wardrobe yes, choices exactly. everywhere. And the weird agenda. And I mean, there's a lot of things you can sort of point to as being, you know, was this just a family vacation that they turned into a trip? Like, there are there are any number of, of avenues of inquiry or the alternative would be, I guess, for the conservatives to perhaps pick a different issue and move on to another thing. But if, we, if you'll recall from the, uh, from the fall, uh, it was Aga Khan every day. It was every single day. There would be that was pretty much the conservative line of questioning was about the Aga Khan visit. So they clearly, for whatever reason, I think have decided that this strategy of going after a very specific issue again and again and again and again will eventually pay off. But do they really want Daniel Jean to testify at I, committee? I don't. Uh, I mean, I think if he showed up at committee and said, "Hey, I'm here," they would, I'm sure, have questions for him. But no, it's more about. Well, and this is where I have to say I've I've started to get frustrated with the way it's being sort of portrayed by, particularly by the conservatives, I have to say, this notion that, you know, well, first of all, it was Daniel Jean refuses to come to committee. Well, the committee's never actually invited him. 
there is no motion out there. The Conservatives put it forward. It was defeated. The House has never ordered him. And then it became the Prime Minister is blocking Daniel Jean. Is there any evidence that Daniel Jean has any desire to testify before this committee? Like, is it, it, this is where it sort of gets weird is because it, it seems to be trying to make this into a much, much bigger deal than it actually is. I have to say, if Daniel Jean were to turn up and to testify, I guarantee you it would be anticlimactic. And of course, if we want to get like boring and parliamentary about it, there are any number of reasons why it probably wouldn't be a great idea to have the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor testifying in an open committee meeting because there probably are things that he would be asked that he would be, when you're at committee, you cannot, you, you, you have to answer every question that's put to you. That's the rule. You have absolute immunity, but you have to answer every question. So it could create a really awkward and a really potentially uncomfortable environment for everyone. Stephanie Carvin, the Carleton University professor who used to be a CSIS analyst, told me last week that um, she thinks it would be a terrible idea for Daniel Jean to go to committee because she was pointing to um, Richard Fadden, who used to be the head of CSIS, who in 2010 had told the CBC in a documentary that there were Chinese influence in the basically top political circles in Canada. And uh, MPs responded to this and they called him before committee. And she says, you know, he really didn't have the tools at his disposal to defend himself properly because it wasn't an in-camera session. He couldn't share the information that he knew with them openly. Right. And so he couldn't really explain why he had said what he had said. And that is exactly, I think, the sort of scenario we would be looking at if Daniel Jean were to come to the Public Safety Committee. I mean, I would even say, even if he were to testify in camera, which is, of course, you know, behind closed doors, no record. Well, then what's the point? Because, I mean, if, if the idea is to bring all this to the public's attention, well, how does that serve the interest, ostensible interest of the opposition parties there? And, I mean, if we get down to an even sort of, and even even more of a bedrock in our parliamentary system of government is ministerial accountability, which means that Ultimately, it's the prime minister's job to answer for his staff and for his aides, and that would include the national security advisor. I suppose if you wanted to, you know, get fun, you could bring Ralph Goodale in. He's public safety minister. He has a role there as well. But ultimately, it is never, I mean, that's the deal is that bureaucrats and, and, and advisors and civil servants and even political staff, they give advice to the minister. It's the minister's job to take responsibility. The minister gets to either take credit or take the blame, but it's it's never supposed to be the staff. And I think this is a pretty good example of where the prime minister is the one that should answer the questions. Bringing Daniel Jean in just opens a whole lot of unfortunate avenues. Although in like the background, senior government mm. sources tell us that Jean chose to talk to reporters on this India trip directly, that the prime minister did not ask Mr. Jean to do this, that he, and frankly, I find this a little bit hard to believe, having tried to read Jean <laughs> in his previous job as deputy minister of foreign affairs to ask him something that was totally innocuous <laughs> and he refused to talk to me. So I find it a little bit much that they're suggesting that Jean felt so strongly about this that he wanted to talk to reporters on the India trip. But that is that is their line, that he decided that this was something he wanted to do. Um, You know, and there you could get into a conversation about, well, would it have made more sense to perhaps for the Prime Minister's staff to say, hey, you know, Daniel, you've got really great information. Perhaps we'll have one of our people take it out there and put it forth, but it shouldn't maybe be you personally delivering the briefing. I mean, we don't know what went on on that plane. I think they were all in desperate damage control mode by that point. So who knows if anyone really knew what was going on. I tend to, I mean, the thing is, I tend to find it plausible that 
if it wasn't his idea that he had no issue doing it simply because I mean, and maybe this is Pollyanna-ish, I don't see this Prime Minister's office actually forcing the NSA, the National Security Advisor, out there if he didn't, if he wasn't willing to do so. Like, I don't see it being like you either go out there and spin those journalists or you're fired. Like, I just have a lot of trouble imagining yes, that dynamic. So for whatever reason, he was willing to do so. That may not have been the best call ever. Uh, but now that it's happened, I still think it is ultimately for, for the Prime Minister to explain why he thought this was a good idea. And then we get into the whole weirdness involving this, as you were saying, the uh, the classified briefing that Andrew Scheer has apparently been offered that he's rejecting and whether or not the information that would be provided there might be different or at least enhanced compared to what was given to journalists. So yeah, I mean, there it, the... the well, the conservative strategy is kind of puzzling and inexplicable. The liberal response to it is equally baffling. On March the 1st, when the public safety minister was asked why the liberals will not let the national security advisors appear at committee, he said, you are asking me to wade into a classified discussion. I can't do that. Then he ran away from questions to the elevator quite conveniently. Today, and earlier this week, he said that none of the information given by the advisor to the media was classified. So on what day was he telling the truth? All of them. I think that, frankly, most liberals, at least on background, will acknowledge that having Daniel Jean go out and tell reporters or suggest to reporters that there might have been factions within the Indian government that were responsible for Mr. Atwal's presence. But like letting that hang out there was probably not the best strategy. At the same time, though, when Mr. Goodale told reporters, uh, and I guess de facto telling the conservatives, mm-hmm. that if they wanted Jean to come testify, the forum in which to do so was the new National Security and Intelligence Committee, it seems like Mr. Jean actually has testified at the National Security and Intelligence Committee. Of course, nobody on the committee can confirm or deny whether or not that happened. The agenda is secret. Um, it's actually not a commons committee. It's run out of the executive branch. Um, and uh, Candace Bergen, who was kind of trying to explain why the conservatives want this to be done in an open forum, she made the right point that any report that happens at the intelligence committee basically gets vetted out of the prime minister's office. So MPs don't get to shape mm-hmm. whatever information they would want to see publicly. But if Mr. Jean has testified at the intelligence mm-hmm. committee, and there are three conservative members on that committee, Tony Clement, Gore Brown, and Vernon White, the senator, why are the conservatives making a stink out of this if some of them actually know the information. Uh, yeah, and and then we are getting into like the next level of confusing here because, uh, yeah, presumably whatever, I mean, everything that happens at that committee is, as you say, absolutely confidential. Uh, the few reports that they're able to make do have to go through the prime minister's office. Although there's the general, I think the, the sort of the rationale for that is that any prime minister who decided to start you know, taking liberties, as it were, with the conclusions and the, I mean, the Prime Minister's office is only supposed to decide what's classified and what's not and that kind of thing. They're not supposed to decide, like, this makes us look bad, so we're going to cut it. I suspect any Prime Minister who did so might find that, you know, that would not be the end of the story. There would be less cooperation yes, on There would be committee. less cooperation, and, you know, <laughs> things might get out as far as what was originally said. But, you know, that aside, yeah, it's entirely possible that they do have some idea what went on and that they're just trying to, you know, sort of turn this into a political issue. I don't understand why you would have the conservatives thinking that that was a 
a valuable strategy because honestly, I'm not sure how many Canadians are riveted by this particular drama and this particular question. It really seems to have gotten so incredibly, this, the, the ever-diminishing circles are basically a dot at this point. And a lot, it's very, I think it's impenetrable for people outside the precinct and even frankly, a lot of people inside the precinct to figure out why it's still a big deal. Uh, maybe the, you know, maybe Tony Clement could tell us what he heard. Maybe Andrew Scheer could go to the briefing that he's been promised and would hear something. But then you get into the question of, do the conservatives actually want to hear a reasonable explanation or do they want to be really angry about things? Or, as Mr. Goodell suggests, being willfully blind. Yeah. So the reason that we think, I should go back Mm -hmm. a little bit, the reason that we think the National Security Advisor did testify at the Intelligence Committee is because Scheer's office told the Globe and Mail after Half Post Canada had broken the story that the PCO mm-hmm. was acknowledging, this is getting complicated, <laughs> that the we PCO <laughs> was acknowledging that it had offered Mr. Shear a briefing. I was told by Shear's office, Althea, you're being lied to. This is fake news. After we published the story, Jake Enright, the Shear's spokesperson, sent the Globe and Mail a note saying, and I'm going to quote this, this was a statement sent to the Globe and Mail, in no way was a formal briefing ever offered to Mr. Shear. The clerk of the Privy Council, this is Michael Warnick, so Shear's office is telling us that Michael Warnick, the head, the top bureaucrat, indicated that he would confer with his legal counsel about the possibility. We indicated our interest and await a formal invitation. So what I was told is that Wernick initially approached David MacArthur. The two of them used to work together at um, the uh, Indigenous Affairs Department, and that's how they knew each other, uh, and uh, offered him the suggestion that he should ask Tony Clement what he learned. So this seems weird. I could see that that's not a formal briefing, but then PCO insists that there was a, a, you know, a briefing with public servants. Mr. Shear says the very next day there was no briefing ever offered. Now the government says, we're offering you a briefing. There's no doubt that the briefing is being oh, offered. Oh, yes, the briefing's being offered. And Sheer insists he does not want to know any classified information. Which doesn't really make a lot of sense because if he actually, and there we get into the question of, okay, well, what is the motivation here? Because if he legitimately wanted to know kind of what Daniel Jean's involvement was, what he told journalists, and frankly, I would assume if classified information is involved in this theoretical briefing, perhaps some evidence would be offered as to why Daniel Jean allegedly said what he said as far as factions within the Indian government. In other words, a classified, like a legit classified briefing to a member of the Privy Council could go into a whole lot more detail about what such uh, claims might be based on than a background briefing to the media. And, And I think that if you really wanted to know the answers, that would probably be a great way to start if you're Andrew Scheer. Particularly since there's no rule that says you couldn't come out and proclaim yourself, you know, unhappy with the answers you got and keep, keep up your attack. It doesn't it, it doesn't preclude you from doing so. You wouldn't be able to use any of the information that you had learned, but you could come out and say, well, nothing I've heard here has changed any of my, you know, concerns. I mean, they haven't been addressed. And then you just carry right onward. So I have to say, I find and it... And the a, public still deserves the right exactly, to know what's going exactly. on. Exactly. And you can huff and puff and shake your hand and it'll be great. And Deserves to know. This is why strategically... I have to say, I'd be curious if I were Andrew Scheer or anyone in that position, I might actually want to know the story. So I would take the briefing on the understanding that it doesn't mean I'm going to shut up about it. So that's why I find it weird that they haven't done it. So are there other possible reasons why the conservatives are after this? Like, are they trying to uh, perhaps turn the bureaucrats against the liberals for maybe politicizing them or asking them to do their political bidding? Is this about... um, 
maybe hurting the liberals' chances within the Indian community? Like, I think there's so, there's definitely there would be some aspects of that. Although I would have to say that uh, in general. All of the parties, none of the parties seem to have a terribly good idea as to exactly how this story is playing out within the Indo-Canadian community, whether we're talking the Sikh uh, community or the broader uh, sort of diaspora. In that sense, it would be a very high-risk move, and I don't know if it's one that you'd really want to stake uh, a major plank of your you know, pre-election outreach strategy on. I suspect that they are trying to add this to the narrative. I mentioned the Aga Khan earlier, but this issue of the liberals bending the rules, the liberals just ignoring convention, of the liberals taking uh, taking high-risk moves to benefit themselves and the prime minister and the party. That's kind of the narrative that they were shaping with the Aga Khan story and the gifts and the inappropriateness. Entitlements. Exactly. Entitlements, but also this notion that the laws don't apply to us. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of you can kind of see how that might be a natural uh, progression. It's just really it remains unclear to me as to why it is that they think that that's that this particular angle of that story is the one to go after. So last week we saw this 21-hour mm-hmm. filibuster, which was on uh, actually kind of a smart strategy, Very frankly. Smart. Very clever. With um, budget votes uh, where, you know, technically the government could fall on any one of these votes. Um, the Caserta's kind of gave up halfway. <laughs> this week we were promised that uh, we were have we would have another filibuster that never really materialized. Yeah, that's right. And, and we should, again, we must give credit where credit's due to whoever the anonymous procedural wonk in the conservative in Andrew Scheer, or I guess it would be the whip's office who came up with the strategy it worked because of the timing it was literally the last day of the estimate cycle so there was no way to defer the vote like everything kind of worked in their favor for this two last week yeah this was sorry yes this was last week this was the vote-a-thon which was you can't you it's a sort of opportunity that literally would only come up once or twice a year depending on how many estimates there are but it worked had they actually carried it through until the saturday it probably would have been more impressive but you know 21 hours i guess that's good but this week, it's as though that particular procedural genius went on vacation, a much well-deserved vacation perhaps, because the strategy that they came to the House with this week made no sense in terms of filibustering. What they were trying to do, just to you know avoid getting into a, a total procedural geek out here, basically they put a whole lot of motions on notice, any one of which would have tied up the House for a certain period of debate. What they ought to have known, because they used to do this when they were in government all the time, is when during routine proceedings, which is when those motions are presented, that's like the fifth rubric down. The first thing that happens after the speaker opens the doors is tabling of documents. That's when Kevin Lamoureux, who is the uh, parliamentary secretary to the government house leader, can stand up and say, here is a response to a petition, and oh, while I'm on my feet... I'm going to move that we go to orders of the day, thus skipping the rest of routine proceedings. It's completely legitimate. It's super annoying if you happen to be the opposition because it means you don't get the chance to move any of your motions. But not exactly a uh, not exactly a secret trick. And the fact that they didn't have kind of a backup plan really makes me wonder what the strategy was here. Um, and just on sort of the broader issue, because this has been another thing that's kind of driving me crazy. It's never been clear to me that the government has any interest in negotiating on this. Like, if for something to work, it has to be leverage. Mm-hmm. Even during the vote-a-thon, the government basically seemed to be taking the approach of, eh, you know what, fine, <laughs> I guess we're going to have to vote. 
it didn't like at no point did I get the sense that they were wanting to make a deal to end it. And I think that the basic kind of a basic principle of negotiation is the other side has to want something in order for you to in be return. able to use leverage. Yeah. And that's never been clear. So that would be sort of a, a, a more basic strategic uh, question I would have. So now MPs get to go on a two-week break for Easter. We don't Easter. call it a break. We a, call working it a working time, time their in their writing. Yes. Um, but they do get a few days off yeah, for Easter. Yeah, they do. They're allowed that. <laughs> Can, will this continue when we come back? Uh, it's, it, uh, if there were to be new developments on this file, if there were something else was to come out that sort of added more uh, intrigue or mystery to Daniel Jean, to the briefing, to the trip in general. Yeah, absolutely, that could renew the campaign. I, I just find it hard to believe that they will come back and decide that what they should do every single day is demand increasingly, you know, increasingly uh, narrowly focused questions on what was going on here. All right. Well, I know that you and I will be watching closely if, when they return. Avidly, avidly we'll be watching. Katie O'Malley, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Katie O'Malley writes for iPolitics. HuffPost is hearing that, yes, indeed, the Tories plan to continue beating the Daniel Jean drum when they return. The latest strategy is, possibly, asking Jean to testify at the Foreign Affairs Committee as part of its study on consular cases. Jean used to be the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. And of course, once he's in the chair, well, any number of questions could be asked. While there's no debating this, it's the end of our show. If you enjoyed this episode on iTunes, please leave us a review. A huge thank you this week to producer Zian Lum and technical producer Stephanie Warner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Happy Easter. <laughs> <laughs>